I'm really excited today because we have a guest preacher. Um, and I'm going to do something a little uh, unorthodox here. Normally we do things in series, right? Because you don't want me up here preaching for 17 hours, right? So we break things down. And we're starting a brand new series called Free Your Mind. We're going to learn how to release ourselves from the limitations of some mindsets that we have. Here's why. Because I don't want to insult God with small thinking and safe living. I don't want to insult God that way. So I believe that if we, if we could just get a hold of our mindsets, we're, we're actually the Bible talks about us having the mind of Christ. Because Jesus set us free. He, he died for you, not just to forgive your sins, but to set you free. For, for us to have freedom even in our thought patterns. Just gain freedom from fear and negativity and insecurity. Why? Because I believe that if you don't change your mind, you're doomed to continue to repeat the experiences of life. All right? So the Bible says in Romans 12 that we're renewed by, we're, we're changed by the renewal of our mind, not the removal of it. Come on, somebody. Right? Right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to train you up to be dumb Christians. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, pastor, whatever you say. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what we're all about. That we're, we're about imparting what does Jesus feel about your mind? What, is, what does he want you to, what is the way he wants you to think? Because what you think you feel and what you feel you speak. And listen to me, what you speak you create. All right? And so we're not here just to even just make you better. We're trying to make an impact in the world around you. I'm going to quote my friend. I haven't even introduced her yet, but I'm going to quote her already. She said this phenomenal phrase that I'll never forget. Um, last year's district conference, we're a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we had last year in our district conference, she said this. She goes, discipleship without multiplication is only self-help. And I'm not interested in just being a self-help church, right? We're, we're going to help you, but I want you to pay it forward, and I need you to help somebody else, all right, so that we could change the world around us. So... I'm stealing her time, and I'm not preaching. Shut up, Pastor Mike. Do me a favor. Let's all stand up, and I want you to give the most amazing fervent welcome to, she's a friend to my wife and I. Uh, we work with her within our district. She has this big, long, huge, crazy title. Um, she's in charge of church revitalization and church health within our district. Uh, she's going to preach. She's going to make herself feel at home. So give her a big, warm welcome to Kim Valenzuela. All right. All right, all right, all right. You guys it. Mike loves to slam on me a bit because I get the fun of working with Mike and with Jill um, through our work at the Metropolitan District of the Christian, Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, so Mike and I uh, notoriously go back and forth at each other. Uh, we have a pretty competitive spirit. He slams on me all the time. And so today, Mike, I'm on the stage with your microphone in hand. So we've got to have a little bit of fun. All right, so you guys, though, I need to hear a little bit from you uh, so that I'm not just always hearing from Mike over here, all right? So I, I would love to interact with you guys. Um, but I'm Kim Valenzuela, and I come to you from New York City. Uh, my husband and I, yeah, live with our two girls in Washington Heights uh, in Manhattan. Uh, we moved there from upstate. And we absolutely love it. We love our community. Um, my husband is Ecuadorian. We're in a Dominican neighborhood. We speak a lot of Spanish. We eat a lot of frijoles, and arroz con pollo. Y, 
Uh, I know. So we have a lot of fun up there, but it is amazing for me to get to come down and to worship with you. This is not my first time here. Um, I've actually been tracking with your church uh, since Mike joined the Alliance. Um, um, my work within the Alliance is that I help support our churches that are part of our district. So we're part of, if you, if you weren't aware, your church is part of a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance. And Fervent Church is one of about 133 churches that we have within our region that spans all of the state of New Jersey, New York City, the five boroughs, uh, Long Island, Westchester, some of the counties up there that I'm sure none of you ever go to. Uh, so that, that's our region, and my work within that is I get to cheerlead. I get to support. I get to come alongside our churches to say, who has God made you to be as a church? What is he doing here in your community, in your families, in your lives, and how can we come alongside and support that? And sometimes that means that we're helping to fan into flame big visions or big mission projects, and other times it means we're coming in with a, uh, a mop and a broom and sweeping up some messes or a little bit of challenging situations. Um, but amidst it all, I just love to be able to come and visit our churches, share a word from the Lord and from my own life as well. So I'm going to pray for us before we jump in because we've got a lot of ground to cover today, all right? So we're just going to take a moment and pray before God for this sermon and the message we're bringing. Holy Spirit, we call this place fervent, but you call this place your house. This is your dwelling place, and you have a, a meeting time with every single one that's here today. And it's not through my words, they didn't come here, this woman speak from, from up in New York area. They came here to meet with you, to receive deeply from you. And as our series says, to receive freedom from you, because freedom is what you always bring. And so I pray for more, Lord. I ask that we would come today with hearts that are open and hungry and desirous to say, we want more of your spirit to free us in our lives and in our minds. May your word be spoken through me in your name. Amen. Amen. So as Mike previewed for you, you're starting a new series, Free Your Mind. And I love this series, and I love this series because of that text that it's rooted in in Romans 12. And the passage that's just before that part where he talked about be transformed by the renewing of your mind is this part that says do not conform to the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world, first and foremost, wants you to live in fear, live in shame, and be trapped in the thoughts of your mind, and therefore you cannot experience all that God has for you. And so I loved when he uh, gave me the fun task of starting with shame. I was like, thank you, Mike. That, that's a real great one to start with. He's like, yeah, you're well acquainted with shame. You know it, you got it, you carry it, so you can speak from it. But shame, it actually is the appropriate place to start in this series. Because at the root of all of the freedom that we desire, if we have shame, if we're carrying shame, we actually cannot find the freedom from negativity, freedom from anxiety, because shame is your greatest accuser. No matter what freedom you're seeking, if you're carrying shame, it's accusing you to live right back into your past, right back into the pain that you've experienced. What shame does is shame is a painfully inflicting voice that defines your identity by your worst sins or by your greatest challenges. And shame always has an accuser. 
Shame always has that voice in the back of your mind that's saying, yeah, remember when? Yeah, but? And sometimes that accuser is inside you. Sometimes it's your own mind, your own heart, your own thoughts inside of you. That's where your accuser is. But sometimes your accuser is behind you. It's that voice of your past. It's that voice of your childhood. I had a childhood accuser. And sometimes the accuser is right beside you. It actually might be someone sitting in the room today. It might be someone in your household or in your family or in your workplace. Sometimes it's beside you. And so if you haven't noticed already, we're going to have to get real deep real quick this morning because I can't talk about shame and not share a few of my stories. So I'll be sharing mine, and you get to think about yours, okay? So a few glimpses of my shame. Number one, my earliest memory of shame was when I was a little girl, about 10 or 12 years old, and I was invited to a pool party of a friend's house, and we were having a lot of fun. And I jumped into the deep end, not knowing that she was just under the surface of the water, and I landed on her head, and she nearly drowned. And as her mother pulled her out of the pool, she told me I had to leave. I could never come back. You're so stupid. You're so reckless. What was planted? Shame. Next story. You can laugh at this one. It's okay. Next one. I had a thing for this guy. I had a thing for this guy, and I was out with my friends, and I really wanted to impress him. I was like in high school, all right? So I was, in, I was with my friends, and we were at this park, and there was this other friend who was with me, this girl, and she was very pretty, and she was obviously the one in the group that was like attracting all the, all the attention. And we come to the, like this hedge that's like blocking our path, and so she just like leaps over it like lovely like a gazelle. Like if you can imagine like a perfect like ballerina hop over this hedge, and everyone was like, ooh, look at that, look at her go. So I was like, all right, I got this. I, I got this. I'm going too. I'm going over the hedge. Oh no, I went head first right into the hedge. I like took a step and I like face planted right into the hedge. So she leapt like a gazelle and I leapt like Frogger getting run over in that old game. You're ugly. You can't even get him. Other people are chosen over you. You can't even make a jump. Shame. And then another one came. The next one was came is I had a daughter. I've got two daughters. Did I say that in the beginning? I've got two daughters, seven and 11. But when I had my first daughter, I was like, this is going to be great. I've always loved kids. I've loved little children. I've worked in daycares. I've been a nanny. I've worked in children's homes. I'm going to be a phenomenal mom. And then she started this thing. How many of you have ever been so mad about a pinching child? Have any of you ever encountered a pinching child? Uh-huh. They're the children that you're like, I don't ever want to be around this child. Again, I don't want to send my children to the nursery, right? I had one of those children. This girl, I had to actually make a chart of like no hitting, no spitting, no pinching, no throwing things. She did them all before she could even talk every single day. I was one of those moms that no one wanted us to come to the birthday party, to the playground, to the nursery, because she would do that. But did I think it was her fault or my fault? I'm not a good mom. I can't control my child. I'm no good at this. 
you've got it all wrong. All the voices, you're not hitting her enough, you're not spanking her enough, you're not controlling her enough, you can't figure it out. Shame. And then it started catching up to me. It caught up to me one day when I was sitting at a picnic table. Um, I was sitting at this picnic table across from a pastor of spiritual formation at a previous church that I ministered in. And I came to her, and I had been meeting with her for about six months because I was having nightmares. And I was having nightmares specifically about India. About India and these little children that were in this children's home, and they were all crying, and I couldn't take care of them was my repeated nightmare. And the reason for this is because I had been years before, years earlier, about five years earlier, I had been on a ministry assignment to India for a two-year ministry assignment. And I had quit a year early. I had burned out. I would gotten a lot of depression, gained a lot of weight. I was completely overwhelmed by the circumstances that I was living in. And so I'd come home. But when I came home, I didn't face any of the shame that I felt for leaving early. And it was catching up to me. And what I believed was that I had quit, I had failed, I was shelved, I was disqualified, God couldn't use me anymore, I wasn't good enough. But I sat across from that table with her and she asked me, she said, Kim, I think that you're believing some lies about yourself. I think that there's some shame here. And in that moment, I was so angry that she was trying to expose me that I stepped away for two years. And I wouldn't answer that question. For two years, I stopped meeting with her because I couldn't face it. There was an accuser so vivid in my life from all of my previous experiences, from my past, from inside myself, that in that moment, I said, nope, that's too hard. And I walked away from that day and I wouldn't meet with her again for two years. So, free your mind. Free your mind from shame. That's a tall order. In that moment, I had no idea how to get free. How do we confront shame? How do we free our mind from the accuser? I don't like it when people try and tell me what to do. Do I have any amens in the room? Okay. It gives me a feeling. But I love it when people tell me the stories of the lives they've lived and how they've walked through it. And in our passage today, we're going to look at a text in Luke chapter 7, if you want to turn with me there. Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at, there's 36 through 50. We're going to look at the life of a woman who lived it and walked it out. And this is the passage. If you guys could see my Bible right now, it has notes all over it. It's underlined, it's highlighted. This is the passage that Jesus has used over and over to walk me through my shame. If you say the word shame, I think of this woman. It's one of my favorite texts of scripture because she's one of the most bold women who looks it straight in the face and says, you will not have the last word of who I am. I'm going to read the text for us. It's long, so hold on, all right? But we'll get through it because it's a pretty good story. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet and knew what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of them both. Now which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Freeing your mind means that you can live in peace. That's what we're here for today. We free our mind to live in the peace of who he says we are, not who the accuser says that we are. Well, we can't start at the end, guys. I know you're ready. I know you're ready. Look, come on, just tell, us the, just tell us the end. We actually got to go right back to the beginning of the text because there's something that happens here that might be even concealed, might even be hard for you to see. Something happens, and the first thing that happens in this text is they named who Jesus is to them. In order to start in this freedom journey, in order to start confronting your accuser and the shame that you carry, you first have to name who Jesus is to you. Simon the Pharisee is looking to try and name who Jesus is to him. And so what he does is he invites Jesus over to his house. He says, he may be a prophet. I hear it around the town that people say that he's a prophet, and that might be what he is. And so let's see. He says, maybe. I want to figure it out. But by and large, he's like, I don't know. Maybe not anything. But the woman, the woman knows who Jesus is. That woman knows. She says, someone is here. All the text says is that she knew that Jesus was in town. She knew that Jesus was going to be at the Pharisee's house. And she said, I got to get there. That's where I belong. Someone is there. And that someone is significant for me. Because you know the work of the accuser? The only thing that can silence the accuser is a voice more powerful and more loving that defines your identity. When the accuser defines you by your worst sin, freedom comes when someone more powerful and more loving defines you by who you were made to be. And that's what she's naming who Jesus is. 
So that means we got to do something this morning. Something you might not want to do. But that means you need to name who Jesus is to you. And some of you may even be coming this morning and saying, I don't know about this Jesus. I know Fervent. I know my friend. I know Mike. He's cool. Jill, she's awesome. But I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus. But what we cannot deny is the impact around the world for over 2,000 years of this man they called Jesus. And you have to reconcile that within yourself. And that's what we're inviting you today. They had to reconcile it within themselves after seeing him about three years, probably two at the point in time when the story takes place. Two years, they saw the impact and they said, we have to reconcile who this is. We're now looking at 2,000 years of worldwide impact by the man of Jesus, and we get to answer for ourselves, who is he to me? You've got three options that I'm going to spell out. First one, irrelevant. He might be irrelevant to you. You might be here this morning. You might come here every Sunday. You might be a regular church attender since the time you were born. You may have taken your first communion. You may have been baptized in the church. Yet Jesus is completely irrelevant to you because he means nothing to you once you step out those doors. He has no impact on your life, on your decisions, on what you do, on where you go, on who you hang with, on what. It's irrelevant. I think that Simon came to the table and Jesus was irrelevant to him. And he was like, all right, they all say he's a prophet. We'll see. We'll see. He was irrelevant. But then there's another option. The second one is inconvenient. Jesus may be inconvenient to you. Inconveniency is when you know he's there and yet you don't want him to be there. You feel him directing you one way and you're like, but I want to go that way. Or it's when you wrestle with, but what, how do I live? Do I live what I want or do I live what he wants? He might be inconvenient because you have so many people in your life telling you how to live, how to live for Jesus, how to be a good Christian, how to go to church, how to do this and that and that, and you're fed up with it. Not necessarily because of him, but because of all of them. When I came back from India, Jesus was highly inconvenient to me. He was highly inconvenient because I believed he had asked too much of me. I believed that he wanted more of me than I possibly could give. He was highly inconvenient. And I think that even Simon, in our text, uh, Jesus became very inconvenient to him when it says he disturbed the other guests that they started wondering who this Jesus is. What, what's going to happen if they all start believing that he's actually a prophet? What's going to happen in our community, in our, in our synagogue, in our temple? He's now getting really inconvenient. Jesus might be inconvenient to you. But then the last one, you might be able to name Jesus like the woman did. Emmanuel. Literally, God himself, God's presence is present with you. He is right there. When God is Emmanuel to you, it means you can't even think outside of him and his presence. Saying he actually influences and impacts and filters every decision I make, every relationship I have, every direction I take in my life, I'm filtering through Emmanuel because the presence of God is present with me right here, right now. And I'll give you one hint. 
He's the only voice powerful enough and loving enough to silence the accuser. To define who you are, not by your worst sin, but to define who you are by who he made you to be. It is what Emmanuel incarnate is for us right here, right now. And that is who that woman named him to be. And she was like, I got to get there. I got to get there because I got a big problem. And that's our second one. The second step this woman took is she had to name her shame. Naming her shame. This woman knew she had a problem. She wasn't oblivious to it. She wasn't hiding it. I want you to just think for a minute about the situation that she found herself in. She is in a situation where if she steps into this house as a sinful woman, now we don't understand fully what her sin was, but we can almost be certain that it was sexual in nature. Most likely that she was a prostitute. And a prostitute of that time, of her type, they could have been even stoned, if not cast out of the community, for even coming into the house of the Pharisee. For even sitting at the table or at the feet of all the men around the table. For touching a guest that they revered as possibly a prophet. She could have been completely cast out, stoned to death for her actions. This woman knew that she faced a major problem. She knew that her shame was too great. The voice of the accuser was too loud inside of her for her to continue. And so she came. You see, guilt and conviction for the sin in our lives, the harm that we've done to ourselves, the harm that we've done to other people, can lead us to repentance. But the work of shame is to say, you can never repent enough. You can never do enough. You can never be good enough. You can never confess enough to make up for what you have done. It will never be enough. And so she knew in that moment, I have a toxic lie that is defining me. I can't experience any of life that I desire outside of this lie. And so it is worth me to take the most costly possession that I own, an alabaster jar of perfume. I would call this the vintage Chanel number five of our day, which I looked up. I was like, how much would the vintage Chanel number five bottle be? And I found one that was listed for like back in the 60s, which that's not that vintage. Some of you hear that vintage, but um, so vintage Chanel number five, and it it was $23,000. This bottle of perfume for her most likely was her life savings or her inheritance. All that she had would have been tied up in this jar of perfume. And yet she says, my shame is so deep. I have been so defined by a toxic lie of the accuser that I can never offer enough temple sacrifices. I can never offer enough repentance to make up for what has been defining me. There's only one. There's only an Emmanuel who might be able to define my life differently. And so she goes with her most costly, sacrificial part of her life. 
Now, some of you today may be carrying shame in the way in which I did. Remember those lies? Two years. It took me two years to name my shame. Two years. And then one moment, I was sitting at my kitchen table one morning before dawn, and I was typing ferociously. I had woken up in the middle of the night knowing what my lies were, knowing the shame, and for the first time having just a window of desire to say, I need to name it. And so I typed out every lie that I believed about myself, and I hit send. And in that moment when I hit send to that woman who had asked me that question two years ago, I broke down in tears. And in that moment, I didn't break down in tears out of freedom. I broke down in tears because I was fully exposed. I knew that no longer was I living in hiding of the thing that was defining me. I was facing it. I was facing it right here. And I was saying, no longer will you have the last word. You are in the light. I am sharing it. I'm facing it. I'm confronting it because I can't keep living with you right here in front of me, with your voice right here behind me, with your voice right here inside of me, right here beside me, accusing me every single day. You're stupid. You're clumsy. You're ugly. You don't have what it takes. You're not good enough for it. And in that moment when I hit send, I broke down because I felt, I felt like now I have named it and I no longer carry it by myself. Some of you today may be sitting here with shame. And you may actually be sitting here and be like, lady, you have no idea the shame I carry. You have no idea the life I've lived. The voices that accuse me. It's too much. It's too great. The addictions, the actions, the words, the multiple partners, the abortion, the divorce, the attraction, the whatever it is that you look at and you say, that's too far. I've got to live with that one. What happens when we don't name it is we actually put ourselves in the judgment sheet for it. We say, I will judge myself. I will condemn myself. I will be the accuser of my life. That's what happens when we don't name it. And the only way to name it is to carry out her next step. And her next step was to say, but I am worth it. I am worth it. I don't have to continue to live by what the accuser says that I am. And so in this last one, she named herself worth it when she took that bottle of perfume off the shelf. And I picture that she tucked it into her satchel, into her bag, and she pulled a cloak over her head, and she walked to the Pharisee's house. She was walking a path to say, I am worth it. And when you name it, and when you walk it towards someone else or towards Emmanuel, the presence of God present with you, you are calling yourself worth it. Isaiah 66.2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor. 
those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. You see, we are not ashamed for facing our shame. We're not ashamed for facing our shame, for naming our shame. We are ashamed for judging others who do name their shame. That's what Simon the Pharisee was doing. He was not aware of his shame, and he was judging others who are aware of their shame. The woman walked in, she's a sinner. That's what Jesus says. No, that puts you in the judgment sheet, in the shame seat. But when you name your shame and you name yourself worth it, he says, these are the ones who I look upon with favor. Because our work, our work is to confront it. Our work is to name it. Our work is to name who Jesus is in the midst of it. And then that activates his work. And his work is to define who you are by who he made you to be. That's what starts his work. And he can't help it. It's in his nature. It's what he loves to do. Is to say, this is my child. This is who she is. This is who he is. This is how much love that I have for you. He cannot help it. It is his nature. And how does he do it? He does it to us just like he did it for her. He restored her dignity and her personhood. He did not just actually forgive her sin. Say, okay, I see what you've done. I see the sacrifice you offer. I see the shame that you've carried. No, he took it further. He said, I don't want to just forgive you of your sin. I actually want to restore who you are so that you no longer can live under the voice of the accuser that shames you. You can live in the freedom of who I say that you are. And what does he do in that? He does three things. The first thing is that he turned towards her. He turns his whole posture, his whole being towards her. In this text, it describes that she is sitting behind him at his feet, weeping and crying. Now, I, I, can't, I can't even try to demonstrate this for you, but you got a picture like a mermaid sit, so like a man-merd. Man, no, man-maid. Merman. Merman. Thank you. I have daughters. You think I know these things. Merman. Think of a merman, right? So sitting sideways, feet tucked back, that's how they would often recline at the tables, so her, she is sitting back here at his feet. That means in order for him to turn towards her, he has to move his entire body towards her. We miss in our context the significance of that turn. Do you know what that turn means? That turn means I am facing you. They wouldn't even do that for the servants. They wouldn't even do that for the other women who are serving in the room. And they definitely would not be doing that for a woman of her reputation. He turned his entire body and posture towards her. And then he did something else. I'm not just looking at you. I'm telling everybody else, do you see her? These are the most powerful words that Emmanuel can speak to you. I see you. And he called them to see her too. What shame does is shame makes us hide. We don't even want to look at those places in our life. We don't even want to face the pain that we carry. If, you want, if you're not sure about where you carry shame, just think about that which you don't want to talk about. 
That's where shame's at. If you, don't, if you can't think about shame, just think about um, sometimes we carry it in our body. The part of your body you don't even want to look at. Shame. And he called, her, called all of them to see her and to look at her. And then in the midst of that, it wasn't enough just to see her. He honored her actions above every one of theirs. He took every single thing that she did and he put it above what they had done. He said, you didn't anoint my head. She anointed my feet. You didn't even wash me, and yet she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He honored every single action. Shame wants you to feel there is nothing honoring about me. I love this one. And yet the work of Emmanuel is to honor every single part of who you are. Because he loves every single part of who you are. Even the part of you that you have felt is the most shameful. Where you've heard the most lies against you. Where you have felt the most disgraced. And the wretched thing about it is that many of you, you feel disgraced in things that weren't even the actions of your own doing. They were things done to you. And yet you carry, if this happened to me, there must be something wrong with me. And he says to you in that moment, I see you. I know what you've done. And I know what you've done not to keep account of your wrongs, but so that I can keep account of every little way in which I love you in those places. That's when the voice of Emmanuel is more powerful and more loving than the voice of your accuser. Some of you today have never experienced the love that I'm speaking of. Some of you today are right in that place where I was sitting at that picnic table, hearing all the lies of my childhood, all the lies of my motherhood, all the lies of my failed ministry attempt. You're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But can you humor me a minute and just consider What does it mean to call myself worth it? What does it mean to name who Jesus is to me? I'm not putting the nail in the coffin when I name who Jesus is to me. I'm actually stating what he already knows is true of how I see him. He knows it. He's just waiting for you to know it. He knows it already. He knows how you perceive him. He knows if he's inconvenient or irrelevant or actually Emmanuel to you. And he's asking this morning, who am I to you? Will you let me be your Emmanuel? And then he says, come on, name that shame. Name that which you carry. Name it, not so that you can be ashamed by it, but so that I can take it, so that I can receive it. Because when I receive it, all you get back is love. 
Name yourself worth it for it this morning. To say, I don't know, no longer want to be accused by the worst things I've done, hidden in shame. I want to live in the fullness of his love for me because he said that little phrase, if I've been forgiven much, I am loved much. Now go in peace. And that's the beauty of peace for us this morning. We can't walk in peace when we're bound up in shame. When your mind is trapped in shame, you can't have peace in any space. You can't have peace in your motherhood. You can't have peace in your friendships. You can't have peace in your relationships. You can't have peace in your work when you feel shame. That's how we know that this woman got free. Free in her mind. Free in her heart. Free in her identity. Because he said to her, now go in peace. That's the invitation for you this morning. Is to be free in peace. I'm going to ask all of you to just give a pause for me with them in a moment. I'm going to pray over you that word of peace. Father, there are, there are individuals sitting in this room this morning. say, I, I had no hope for peace in my life. And yet you are here to minister specifically and individually to their darkest place of shame. To say, I love you. I see you. I hold high honor for who you are and who I've made you to be. And I love you. May your word of truth, may your word of peace penetrate every heart that's in this room this day. May we define who you are, Emmanuel. May we not fear to name our shame in the face of your presence because we say we are worth it because we are a daughter of the Most High God. In your name, amen.